Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trouble so hard, ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble for God. In 1999, your cool friends put on Moby's play at parties. In 2000, it was on the radio. Popularity snowballed into ubiquity. In 2001, play was in malls and Volkswagen ads. It became the biggest-selling electronica album of all time. To fans outside the electronic music world, Moby seemed like an overnight success. But he was 33 in 1999 and had been recording since the 80s. Play was actually his fifth studio album. It never occurred to him it would break even, let alone break records. The self-described loner and nerd succumbed to the worst sort of rock star excess. As his fans filled stadiums and models showed up in his dressing room, Moby was euphoric, but spinning out of control. It's a story he shares in his new book, Then It Fell Apart. I spoke to Moby last month. In the early chapters of his book, Moby is coming to terms with the album going platinum. What do you think happened inside the music in that album that was different? Did something click? Did something change? All of a sudden, you're a monolith in the music business. Yeah, and to contextualize it, before that album play came out, my career had essentially ended. I'd lost my record deal. It was a very dark time. My mom had died. I was lo- Where were you I, living then? I was living on Mott Street. Um, and I you recorded play where? In my bedroom on Mott Street. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and Well, actually, I, I slept in the closet, and I had my, my bedroom had been turned into an ad hoc recording yeah. studio. And, and I thought, so I'd made play. My last album had failed completely, and I'd lost my record deal. With who? Uh, I was signed to Elektra, uh-huh. and then I was signed in the UK to a label called Mute, and they hadn't dropped me. 
But to put it in perspective, they'd never dropped anyone. That was their claim to fame is they'd never dropped an artist. Just in like, case. Yeah. So I was like, I couldn't really take too much comfort in the fact that I hadn't lost my deal with Mute when they'd never, ever dropped an artist. So play, who, who released Play? Well, Richard Branson started a label called V2. Uh-huh. And someone working at V2 somehow heard one of the songs on Play. I still don't know how. And he offered me a deal. But, yeah, I mean, before it was released, I thought, okay, I'm an alcoholic, bald, has-been. I'm going to release this one last living record. Living in my closet of Mott Street. Living in my closet. You when can hear the pipes done, leaking in the kitchen while I'm recording. Oh, was, well, the, the, the building was from the mid-19th century in, on Mott Street, and it had been a slaughterhouse. So the space I was living in, this is weird, as an animal rights vegan, the floors all sloped to central drains. Because yeah, 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 yeah. when it had been a slaughterhouse, they would just hose the yeah, floors out, and all the yeah, offal would just get washed down yeah. the drains. So I'm in that environment. Uh, thinking I'm going to move back to Connecticut. I'm going to get a job teaching community college. I'd probably be a philosophy professor to students who just had no interest in paying attention to philosophy. And then this album comes out, and rather than failing, it kept doing better and better. So to your question of, like, musically why that happened, I still to this day have... Because a lot of the vocals on play were, like, old African-American vocals from the mid-20th century. And if I look at... There's just no precedent for a middle-aged musician making a record in his bedroom at the end of his career involving vocals from people who've been dead for a few decades. Like, that's not a recipe for a hit record. I remember at some point it sold 50,000 records because I thought it was going to sell nothing. I was amazed that my album had sold 50,000 records. And then six months later, it was selling 100,000 copies a week. What do you attribute that to? I, what did people respond to? The only people thing, are listening to your music and buying your music in a world that is choked with music. It was, there was so much stuff out there they can listen to, and they buy ten million copies of your album. Why do you think? You know, I was recently doing an interview with Larry King, and he asked me that question, and he sort of asked me like, "If you could replicate it, would you?" And I was like, "Oh, I tried." <laughs> right, like the right. following, like the next Play three albums, I, I kept. I was like how do I recreate that? And I never really could. Like that one sort of weird lightning in a bottle moment. I don't, I mean, I don't want to anthropomorphize the universe too much, but I almost feel like the universe was in a sort of lighthearted educational way saying like, okay, we're going to give you everything you ever wanted times a million and it's going to come close to killing you and you're going to hopefully learn something from it. Mm -hmm. So there was like, and again, I'm, I, that, that might sound very narcissistic, like I've just anthropomorphized a 13.8 billion-year-old universe. Mm-hmm. But it felt like, if at the end of the day, more than anything else, educational. Like the universe is going to say, like, okay, you live it's in a culture. It's not a crime to anthropomorphize the universe. It's don't part of the human condition. Well, let's think, go from yeah. there then. So the album comes out in 1999. It's, it's difficult for some people to say this is his style. You've had a lot of different, you know, kind of tones and a lot of different variety to the sound of your music. And what was music in your childhood? Were you in a chorus? Was it church? Was it music school? It was weird. I started playing guitar, I guess when I was around 9 or 10, because one of my mom's boyfriends had gone to jail and left a guitar behind. But your mother is kind of from a privileged background, Connecticut. Quasi. I mean, like, my grandfather worked on Wall Street. Right. But then my mom sort of rejected that. The 60s progressed, and she fully embraced 
the hippie lifestyle. But your dad, your dad passed away when you were how old? When I was two. So when you were two. And how long did you stay in New York after he passed away? My mom moved back to Connecticut to get her undergraduate at East Con, if that is even still a school. And then we went to San Francisco in 1969, where everything sort of fell apart. And, and you were how wrong. old then? Three. So, you, so right after your dad passed away, she finished school? Finished and school. We there. went to San Francisco, and she sort of, I guess, was very torn. Like, the counterculture was happening, and she really desperately wanted to be a part of it. Uh, you know? And did, so, did you have any ideas why? I have a feeling... Half of it was rejecting, like growing up in Darien, Connecticut, being encouraged by her parents to sort of be very conservative and very traditional. Mm. Um, So it was a rejection of, to an extent, her family, but also just wanting to be a part of this new exciting paradigm. Mm. You know, I mean, 1969. An original paradigm. That's something that's been copied since then. Yeah. yeah, that, That was it. And she's 23 years old. And she wanted to be this free spirit artist, but she also had a three-year-old child. And that's where things, a lot of tension and trauma really came from. What did your dad do for a living? He was a chemistry professor at Columbia. But he had been in the military and he was, it's funny, people don't really talk about it that much, but I think he was either an assassin or a sniper. Um, Because I've asked people in my family, I'm like, oh, what did my dad do in the military? And they're like, well, he did a lot of things. It's never – so I think – because he killed himself. Right. And he was a – He drove a car off the Verrazano. He drove – I don't know where exactly, but he got very drunk. My mom had threatened to take me away from him. And so he got drunk and got in his car and drove 100 miles an hour into a bridge somewhere. And died. Now, um, what would people tell you, if at all, did you – do any investigation or did you have some curiosity as to what your dad was like? Did you learn a little bit about him later on in life? Well, it's only... Beyond his CIA cred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only in adulthood did I realize how little I knew about my father. Yeah. Like, for example, if I had a child with a woman and she died, as the child grew up, I would do everything in my power to make sure the child knew who his mom had been. You know, we would talk about it and... After my dad dies, he was never mentioned. Right. His mother never mentioned it to me. And all I knew was that he'd been in the military and I had photos. And But again, it was only after my mother died that the rest of the people in my family sort of let me know that my father had been a professor and he had a good sense of humor. And so your was, mother had to die before people were allowed to introduce you to your dad. Kind of, yeah. Interesting. And I found – and it sort of had this – quasi like almost like a checkoff play quality like i found out after my mother had died i found out that my father had killed himself because my whole life up until that point i thought he had just died and no one ever explained right. how or why and i also found out i have a half brother somewhere which um <clears throat> can i tell you a story about who my half brother is not Please. i think you'll appreciate yeah. i was in dc in 2007 with alexandra pelosi nancy's daughter right. and we were with Nancy. Nancy was the Speaker of the House. And this is pre-sobriety, so I got very drunk and ended up talking to a journalist from Politico and telling this journalist that I have a half-brother, and I jokingly said, maybe it's Karl Rove. The journalist wrote a little Politico piece saying, are Moby and Karl Rove brothers? Two weeks later, I get a letter on White House stationery. It says, dear Moby, it's not me. For one thing, I'm 17 years older than you and I have no musical ability. Have you considered James Carville as your long-lost brother? Because he's bald and plays the guitar too. Your pal, Carl Rove. Oh, no. oh, no. And I was like, so I know 
as far as I know, Carl Rove is not my half-brother. Oh, you have one? Did you ever meet the half-brother? I, I have no idea who yeah. or where he might be. Yeah. You, you know, your story, and we'll, we'll get to some of the details of this in the book, the, the self-destructiveness, but an impression I get of you, the way you live, is you, you like to isolate. Yeah. And you talk about this panic plateau thing or whatever the terminology is, which, which, which kind of hampered or impacted relationships you would have with people. Is oh, that- yeah. I mean, I'm 53, and I've never had a serious relationship. Um, and over Does time— Does that trouble I, you? It used to. But then over time, I've sort of made peace with it. I mean, I guess there's almost in a way, not to overstate it, but like there's a there's a sort of utility to being incapable of having real relationships, which is I get to work on other things. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get to be— spend You make more time. good use of the time. Yes, I, I get <laughs> to spend more time doing activism. I get to spend more time, I don't know, reading working on music, working on art. I have a weird little production company in L.A. so I can work more on that. So I had always thought that the key to happiness, at least growing up, was like you find your perfect person, you build a life with them, and at some point I realized, oh, that's just not in the cards for me. Mm -hmm. And so there's... So far. So far. But at the same time, I don't don't have any longing for it. You don't. Which... Not that you know of. Not that I know. I mean, maybe I'll meet the, you know... Maybe you just—it's—it's it's, you don't know. Do you want to venture where it comes from? I, Does it come from certain obvious childhood signals? I, th- I think so. Yeah. I I assume so. That because you were left alone a lot as a child. I was left alone, and I was also raised. You know, I grew up very, very poor in a very wealthy town in Darien, Connecticut. Right. And my mom dated Hell's Angels. There was a lot of. But you went back to Darien when you were how old? When I was. Five, so you were, you, five. you were in San Francisco just a couple of years. Yeah. So your mom's smoking pot and the taking petite acid. dresses and taking acid. Yeah. And, and, and everybody like, you know, kind of cavorting around the hate or whatever they were doing. Yeah. You were only there for a couple of years. And then we moved back to Connecticut. For how long? Well, I lived in Connecticut from the time I was five until the time I was 21 So you basically 22. grew up there. Yeah. I'm just an inbred white trash kid from Connecticut. The San Francisco thing was a brief period of a couple years. That was years. just brief and traumatic. Right. And then traumatic we, how? Well, traumatic, there was sexual abuse. Um, my mom, and I don't want to throw her under the bus posthumously, but she wanted to hang out with her friends. She was 23 years old, so they put me in this very low-rent daycare center, and I was sexually abused there. What did she do during the day? Did she work? Not in San Francisco. There she was, was supported by her family? They were all dependent on somebody. A lot of kids from Connecticut who in 1964 had been playing lacrosse. Nothing wrong with lacrosse. I just was never very good at it. And uh, they had short hair, wearing Izod's, you know, going to Weeburn Country Club, drinking gin and tonics. Then all of a sudden, they're living on Haight-Ashbury with fringe jackets and hair down to the middle of their back, taking acid. And I sort of got caught up in the middle of that as a a three-year-old. Yeah. When you got back to Connecticut and you grew up there, uh, did your mother uh, um, develop as a parent? And as she was getting older, what, did she become a better parent? Or was there a continued period of isolation and kind of uh, uh, not, not good child care for um, you? Both in equal measure. Right. Like, we had a good support system of my grandmother, I had aunts and uncles. So there was a lot of support, but— Did you spend a lot of time with your mother's parents? Yeah. Um— but also a lot of time alone. Because also we were very poor. We were on food stamps and welfare, and we were in Darien, Connecticut, which is per capita one of the wealthiest places in the world. And so 
I had this constant sense of shame. You know, so when I went to school, it was pretending that I didn't live in a garage apartment and that we weren't on food stamps and welfare. You know, if I had the flu, I would come back and say, oh, we went to Switzerland because that sounded like something that wealthy people would say. Mm. So just this, the sense of shame and the sense of inadequacy and not to, again, not to overstate it, but like when you grow up with that, it's hard, even in adulthood, when your circumstances change, it's hard to move past how you were formed when did you start to get this idea that you were going to write music? I think, well, my mom, who was an aspiring musician, pianist. Uh, I mean, I remember my mom had the most odd, eclectic record collection. You know, so she had Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Dvorak and Lightning Hopkins and Baba Olatunji. And so I just grew up with this constant soundtrack of weirdness and it made sense to me and she she dated musicians um my uncle was a musician my great grandmother actually taught classical composition to arthur fiedler she was arthur fiedler's mentor so i grew up in this weird idiosyncratic musical household so i never thought as i was growing up that i would have a career as a musician i just knew that i loved music and i wanted to be a part of it and I had a lot of free time because I wasn't very good at sports. And Did you do well in school? I did okay. Right. So my name, Moby, is a nickname that I've had since birth because I'm related to Herman Melville. <laughs> so what I learned was when teachers found out that I was descended from Herman Melville, they just would add 15 IQ points. They would assume <laughs> right, like, right. oh, he's got to be like yes. erudite because he's descended from Herman Melville. Same thing. I went to college and I was a philosophy major and I was not a good student. But I realized the moment you tell someone you're a philosophy major, they think you're way smarter than you actually are. Yeah. So like descended from Herman Melville philosophy major, like that just added 30 bonus points to my IQ, totally unwarranted. Um, so I had growing up, had a lot of free time had access to instruments and was raised in this odd creative family. So I just started writing music when I was around 10 or 11. Um, and I'd also, my uncle had given me some hand-me-down photo equipment, so I started taking pictures. And here's an odd little funny story. My best friend when I was nine years old was Robert Downey Jr. And so his dad gave us, because his dad was a filmmaker. And in we, Darien. In Darien. He, he lived there. Uh, Darien has a baffling array of odd public figures like Ann Coulter and Gus Van Zandt and Robert Downey Jr. and Chloe Sevigny and Steve-O from Jackass and the author Rick Moody from this little town of 14,000 people. All of them are very odd people. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Ann, Ann Coulter and Gus Van Zandt odd. went to the same high school. Yeah. Yeah, so Robert and I made, with his this Super 8 camera, his dad, had, when we were eight and nine years old, we started making little films, long since disappeared but it was just part of the ethos of just go out and make things with no expectation that there would be a career or that you'd even make anything good. But I just started writing and taking pictures and making little movies and writing songs and doing all this. And you'd a, make little movies to how if you were broke? Uh, Super 8 camera. Right. You got your hands on a Super 8 camera. Yeah. Like in a pawn shop or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like a really cheap, shitty Super 8 and, camera. And you could develop film, you know, like – Two and a half minutes of Super 8 film, yeah. and then you 
edit it on your kitchen table oh, with pieces of tape. Yeah, so I used to do Super mm-hmm. We used to do Dracula. Yeah, and I'm emerging from the coffin, and and then you develop it and you show it on a sheet and you in send your it kitchen. To can. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're ready to get a can. What's the first song you wrote? Do you remember? Do you remember? Ah, oh, boy, I, well, so I I started playing guitar and then I had a very odd music teacher. He played in a heavy metal band. But he also loved jazz fusion and classical music. So one day we would what learn was his name? Chris Rizzola. He would teach me a Van Halen song, even though I never really liked Van Halen that much. And then we would do a Larry Carlton or Weather Report jazz fusion thing, which I also didn't like that much. And then do a Bach cantata, which I loved and I still to this day love. And then I broke his heart because when I was 13, I discovered punk rock. And so... I sort of cast aside like music theory and the sort of idiosyncratic but formal music education I had to play Clash covers. And because he, he thought I was going to go on to be this virtuoso guitarist. And the It'd irony. Segovia. Yeah. And the irony is by embracing punk rock and non virtuosic, if that's a word I just invented, music, I ended up coming back to the world of classical music and have since started playing with orchestras. You are now. Yeah, I just I just did a, um, a performance with Dudamel in the L.A. Phil. Did you? No, what did you guys play? We well, they, it was two programs. The first program was L.A. composers, and they put a piece of music of mine in there. It's a, a song that I'd written for a Michael Mann movie years ago. Which and film? For Heat. You, yeah, you wrote a song for Heat. It's the very end when Al Pacino and Robert De Niro finally had. I don't want to spoiler alert. So they did that as part of the first program, and the second program was all orchestral versions of my music. Oh, wow. During the rehearsal, there was, I don't know, 180 of us on stage because we had a huge choir, full orchestra. And I realized, like, okay, we're doing my music, and I'm without question the least talented musician on stage right now. Like, I'm the person who, like, if I stop playing, no one will notice. But in God Moving Over the Face of the Waters, there's this big crescendo, you know, with, like, timpani and cymbals. And I got so annoyed because the percussion had come in early. And I was like, what? Like, this is the L.A. Phil. How did they screw up? And I realized there was a thunderstorm. And I was like, so this song is called God Moving Over the Face of the Water. Keep in mind, this is in September. Is this a sort of good theological argument for the existence of God that he plays percussion during classical music? You did this recently with the L.A. Phil. What's yeah. the first time you did that? Uh, well, the first time was actually Michael Mann. Um, For Heat. Yeah. I had written some classical pieces. He heard them. And this was 1994. How did he hear them? How did he? I were they unpublished? I, they were, no, they, I'd put them as a B-sides on oh, records. Oh, they, so they were out there. And somehow he had heard them. And I, we then had one of the weirdest phone calls. Do you know Michael Mann? I'm sure. Oh, I know yeah. of him, yeah. So we're friends. I use that word loosely because I don't know if in my mind he and I are friends but he's a odd (laughs) wonderful creative man but like our first phone call was he got my number and he called me up and he spent 45 minutes telling me the story of heat and hung up the phone I didn't say one word apart from hello so I was like hello he said Moby this is Michael Mann 45 minutes soliloquy telling me in great detail everything about heat like the archetypes that are going on sort of like the classical element the moment he was done he just hung up and I was like what just ha- – I'd never spoken to like an esteemed film director before. And I was like, is this is how film directors talk to people? They just call up and talk for 45 minutes and hang up the phone? That was the first time you had provided score for a film. 
Well, I went to SUNY Purchase briefly, um, and I had some friends in the experimental film program there. And so my friend Paul made an experimental movie called Me, I, the Onion in 1990 or 91. So technically, that would have been my first foray into film composing. Beyond Me, I, the Onion. Yeah, made it. Michael Mann was the first? Yeah. Did it lead to how many, how many other films have you contributed music to? Uh, other this, than sourcing well, your I also discography? Have a, I have a weird website called mobigratis.com, and it gives free music to independent filmmakers, nonprofits, film students. So if we count that, 10,000 films, but those are um, like three-minute short films. The ones where people PSAs. hired you? Hired? I, I wouldn't know. Hundreds? Thousands? I mean, like... Oh. You're not, not accessing your music you published. They hired you to do score for oh, that oh, film. Oh, because there's see, licensing music. Um, licensing music I'm is sure your music so is much fun. Up the yin-yang, and yeah. that's like, it's the greatest thing in the world because all you have to do is say yes. You don't, there's no work involved apart right. from that. Actually, writing music. So when I moved to L.A. after I got sober. The first time. This most, like 10 years ago, I got sober. And I but moved then you to, got sober twice. Um, yeah, once in 1987. Right followed by a glorious 13-year-long relapse. We're going to get to that. And then again in 2008. And so then I moved to L.A. and I thought, okay, I'm middle-aged, I'm sober, I'm in Los Angeles, I need to fully commit myself to film composing. And then I realized I really don't like film composing. Like it's... What about it don't you like? Uh, well, I can, like when I work on my own music, it's just me in the studio there's no music supervisor, there's no director, there's no producer. I can kind of, I have some complete self-sufficiency. I don't have to respond to other people's comments. And as an only child who doesn't do well with people, that's nice. And my friends who are great film composers, part of their skill set is knowing how to deal with 20 different executives sure, at the same time. Too. And I just, it was too stressful for me. A tremendous skill to have. Yeah, and a lot of Xanax. Yeah. This is God moving over the face of the waters, the piece Moby wrote for Heat, after a lot of input from executives at Warner Brothers and director Michael Mann. Stephen Daldry is another great film director with strong opinions about how everyone should do their jobs. I find it really crazy when actors come in self-prepared because they've done some journey that they're getting in this comment you know my character and you're going look it's not your character okay it's ours and we're going to make it up now interesting i'm going to remember that it's ours well my character wouldn't do that well let's change the character then the rest of my conversation with stephen daldry can be found in our archive at here's the thing.org more moby in a minute. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Moby never would have ended up so low if he hadn't been so desperate to be lifted up. He craved the affirmation of fame. I loved it. You did. And I just wanted more. This guy that was this isolated guy that was left alone. Yeah. You can't get enough of that. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden... I was being invited to fancy parties, meeting sure. heads of state, being flown around the world on private planes. Being given free skating. clothes to wear in public. I mean, I still have them. Sure. You know, it's yeah. like suddenly like people are competing about who gets to dress you for yes. the red carpet. And, you know, it's like Versace and Calvin Klein are like, oh, well, yes. let us send you free tuxedos. I was yes. like, you know, before this record – I was buying clothes at Salvation Army on the corner of Lafayette yeah. and Prince. Banana Republic. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, it was great. And then, of course, it wasn't great. You know, like, my narcissism got out of control, my entitlement, because I felt at the time, like, 2000, 2001, 2002, I felt that all I needed to be happy was constant love and attention from every person on the planet um, to make $10 million a year for the rest of my life. And to make sure that I could be as promiscuous as possible, do as many drugs as possible. We're going to get to that. And drink as much as possible without consequences. So, like, obviously, in hindsight, I recognize how absurd and unrealistic it is. But at the time, I just wanted, like, every night to be 
like this indulgent festival of narcissism and but, entitlement. But, but that Russian was a, mobsters? Can, yeah. can you tell me some of these stories that were in the book? Yeah, that was a weird one. We took helicopters to Staten Island and had this... <laughs> Weird dinner with the guy who apparently invented the Cabbage Patch doll and then went on to produce Steven Seagal movies. Yeah. And then we left and I went to a party on Park Avenue, very drunk. We show up and I met some friends and they were talking about this game that they played in college called Knob Touch. And what Knob Touch is, you take your flaccid penis out of your pants and you brush up against people. And you huh. win by the number of people you can brush up against. And I'd never done this. And my date, Miss New Hampshire challenged me to play knob touch and there's only one human being on the planet I have brushed my flaccid penis against that man is currently the president of the United States no yes where was this being held this is some bar on part like a one of those big restaurants on Park Avenue in like 21st so like in public and this isn't a private party I mean it was like a one of those New York style parties where maybe it was like Ralph Lauren was launching a new paint color or something. You know, those, those things that you just go to. Yeah. And you're not like, I don't know why. I have I'm a here. couple drinks. Yeah. So I was very With drunk. Other famous people. And I brushed my flaccid penis you against You rubbed the head Trump. of your penis against Donald That's Trump. a little brush. Right. He didn't know. It was dark. It's like, like truth or dare. And what's funny is the, the publisher of the book said, like, in this climate, I don't know if you should include that. I was like, you know what? I think... Donald Trump being able to say that I me tooed him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're ready. To- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're there, and 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 you're this big superstar. When did you begin to think we really should get back into the studio and make another album? Uh, so then, I, the tour for play was supposed to be three and a half weeks long, and it ended up being twenty six months long. <laughs> but the whole time, because I've always compulsively written music, I have now probably like eight or nine thousand pieces of unreleased pieces of music so even at the bottom of my like alcoholism drug addiction narcissism entitlement self-destruction i was that still didn't break i kept writing music so the you problem couldn't break that yeah the problem with <laughs> albums was to look at like a thousand songs and figure out how do you get 15 to put on an album it doesn't mean they're good and when i say eight thousand pieces of unreleased music i'm not speaking to the quality of them right. like a lot of it's garbage but i just it's this weird Almost like, you know, there's that word logaria. I have that of music where I just keep making it without any concern for whether it's good or bad. I just keep writing. And so... It's like a broken pipe. Yeah. Yeah, just like you turn on the faucet and just leave it on. So the next album was called 18. um, And I thought like, okay, this is... Like play was big. I want this to be bigger. And so like... I think the promo tour for the next album was five months long. Like five months of just like, you've done it as well. Like traveling around the world, sitting in hotel rooms, going to every country, every TV show, everything. And I just wanted to be more famous, have more money, sleep with more people, drink more, do more drugs, tour more. But for the guy that was isolated, are you sitting there saying, this is more like it now. Everybody wants to take their clothes off and jump in bed with me. And It seemed like fame was going, and this is... When I say it out loud, it just sounds so absurd. I honestly, and I wouldn't have admitted this, but deep down what I believed was that fame was going to fix everything. Like right. every, all the trauma from childhood. You really believe that? The sen- yeah, the senses of, ana- the sense of inadequacy, all on. that fear, you know, the self-centered fear. Right, self-centered narcissistic fear is the root of all of our problems. Yeah. And living in a constant state, living in a constant state of agitation, worrying about, am I going to get this? Is this going to be taken away from me? Which defines my life. Mm-hmm. They, they say in uh, 12-step literature, they say that um, 
our greatest fear is to lose something we already have or not get something that we want. Mm -hmm. I just thought, oh, fame will fix it. As long as I can keep getting invited to great parties and drinking and doing drugs and as long as I get good reviews. But then the universe with its sense of humor took away all the things that I, it, you know. The, Do you know the, why? The, Do you have a sense why? I think because on a, on a sort of artistic level, there came a time, and I'm so ashamed to admit this, in around 2002, 2003, I wanted to make great music, but I, I wanted music to be a means to an end where I wanted it to, like, sustain my career. So before, my life had just been spent How making music. How do I music. keep it going? Yeah, and, and I had never thought of I don't want to go backwards. Yeah, I was like, I, I, I the feeling, yeah. And before that, all I wanted to do was make music that I loved. You know, that music that somehow right. was, like, it was, emotional, it was beautiful, expressive. 2002, 2003. Three years after the release of the play. I still wanted it to be beautiful, but first and foremost, but I it wanted it to but be it was, commercially viable. Right. If it was a little less beautiful and it sold more copies, that was okay with me. Yes. And I started thinking, oh, okay, well, if I produce this type of song, it'll get on the radio. And if I produce this, it'll sell more. And like the paradox, the wonderful, in hindsight, the wonderful paradox is the more of an effort I made to be famous, the less famous I became. You know, you were very open with the press. You courted the press. You would speak to anybody. You know, for me, the problem has always been that, you know, the press is never. It, it's a sad, it, it does sometimes make me sad. I get, I get over it. And then every now and then it comes up and blackjacks me again out of mm -hmm. nowhere. It's like, it's like in an alleyway. I get mugged by it again. Yeah. Which is, they're never going to interpret who you really are to the public. Never. They, they don't have that ability. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so painful. The misunderstanding that goes hand in hand with it, especially being put like the cheese grater there. Because I, when I, I don't know if you had this experience, but when I started getting press attention, right. I loved it. Right. And in the beginning, they were so nice, and the right. reviews were gentle, and then the reviews were great, and then you have this sweet spot where you have like fame, and you're lauded in the press. Right. And then it turned, and then all of a sudden the reviews got bad, the articles got bad, and I felt so betrayed. I was like, why, why can't you guys just be nice? But then time passes, and I'm like, in a way, like, God bless them for turning. Because I've since then, like, when, when you're rejected, when the press rejects you, you then, at least for me, I had to sort of look like, okay, well, who am I without that? You know, and where does my worth and sense of self come from? And, like, realizing, oh, if it comes from the opinions of people I've never met, there's something really unstable and unhealthy there. You know, I had this epiphany recently. I was in L.A., middle of February, hiking in Griffith Park. And it was a one of those beautiful days, like the sun is shining, coyotes are running around, hummingbirds are flying by. And I suddenly thought, like, okay, if my last album had sold 10 million copies, and if every journalist on the planet loved me and wrote great things about me, and if I was dating the most beautiful woman on the planet, how would this moment be better? And I was like, it wouldn't. Like, you know, good reviews, good press, all this stuff doesn't, and I know I sound like a crazy new age hippie, but like it wouldn't affect okay. like that moment of like, this is public radio. like standing in the sun, wearing a t-shirt, smelling sage and lavender, watching the hummingbirds fly by. I was like, the universe in that moment was so benign and indifferent to anything that I cared about. And there was some, there's sort of like a transcendent liberation, almost like Emersonian style liberation yeah. in that that moment. I'll, I'll take that feeling 
at this point. I just turned 61, and I'll take that feeling wherever I can get it mm-hmm. here now. And, and, and at my age, I have to accept that my creative energies may or may not come to the fore here. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, I have to find something else to do to get off creatively, which is what I do. I, I completely yeah. segregate my creative from my commercial in a way that I never thought was possible. And and there's one, because you, you referenced the 12 and 12 earlier. Yep. Um, I don't know if that's a, if 12 steps is part of your life. Or, yes. Oh, okay, me too. Yeah, I'm 34 years sober. Oh, congratulations. 85 I got sober, yeah. So it's, I mean, and again, I feel like such a middle-aged cliche saying this, but like the 12 steps really, of all the like therapeutic things I've been through, the 12 steps really saved me. Right. And one of the things I learned, as you mentioned, was like the role of fear and trying to sort of like deconstruct fear and learn from it. But the other thing that when I did the 12 steps that I really loved was all of my judgment up until that point was sort of based on the misperception of omniscience or of fake omniscience. Like when I had an album that failed, I was furious because I knew that it should have succeeded because if, if it had succeeded, it would have been better for me. And then all of a sudden I realized, like, again, in a 13.8 billion-year-old universe, I don't have omniscience. I don't know causality. If I want something to work out and it doesn't work out, in a way I'm like, who am I to judge? And in politics as well, because I got really involved in politics for a while, I was like, the vast majority of people on the planet, their goal is to keep the lights on tomorrow. Uh-huh. You know, like, they're go- yeah. like they want a job. They want yeah. – to keep their you have to understand and, and, where they're coming from. And I have to be like, okay, that's it's like with the press as well. I have to remind myself, like most of the people I know who are journalists, like they're barely able to pay the rent. And I don't want to be patronizing or judgmental, but I have to sort of say like, okay, my job is not to rely on them for my sense of happiness and right. well-being. You know, like my sense of strength. Or, or my creative yeah. output. And the same thing. And, and – <clears throat> Creatively, if they're too much of a hindrance, you move on. You sort of say like, okay, God bless, you know, like have healthy boundaries. And I just say like, it almost makes me think of like that, like the Rudyard Kipling poem, is it If? Mm -hmm. I remember reading when I was Mm -hmm. like eight or nine years old. And it's sort of that idea of just keep, I just keep going. Not even from strength and fortitude, more just sort of like like a post-apocalyptic cockroach. Just keep right. plowing forward. Like someone steps on you, okay, you stepped on me. Have a good day. I'm going to keep going. But, but this is you also, know? if I really became the biggest movie star in the world and made hundreds of millions of dollars in private planes, this, who the fuck knows what I would have done with that? Yeah. I, I would have screwed that up. I mean, luckily, time. I'd be dead. In a way, like as, as sober middle-aged guys, um, I feel like and maybe this is an indelicate thing to say, but like a lot of people have done the work for us. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, yeah, 20 years ago, I would look at Michael Jackson and say like, wow, look at that the wealth and the fame and the adulation. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I'm really glad. I, I, I'm, I'm glad. I wasn't hanging out with him. Yeah, and I'm glad that I was cut off to an extent from the access to like excessive wealth and fame that he had. And we... Again, it's a hard thing to talk about because I don't want to malign anyone, right. especially the same if, way. if they're dead or struggling. But like we know – I mean the number of public figures who have had profound success, profound wealth, and it destroys them. I mean like people like you and I are the ones who sort of like hopefully emerge unscathed and chastened with hopefully an understanding that we can almost use in the form of service. Right. You know, To go out and be like, okay – 
I've learned a lesson that's an odd, rare, unique lesson. Let me try and do something with it. Yeah. Was there an epiphany? What was the What was the bottom? The bottom was. Do you remember? A restaurant in New York called Zen Palette. Yes. A vegan Chinese restaurant. So this is a little analogy. New Year's Eve, 1992. I went to the Zen Palette on 9th Avenue. Sure. And I ordered in the 40s. Pur- yeah. And I ordered purple Japanese eggplant and it disagreed with me. And I never ordered purple Japanese eggplant again because I had one bad experience with it. Vodka, cocaine, everything. I would do it every day, and it would kill, almost kill me and make me sick, and I kept going back. And basically the consequence – what I mean is like the rational That's response to vodka and cocaine, if you have a night out and the next day you want to blow your you brains out and you're miserable, response. is to say, wow, that was bad. I shan't do that again right. as opposed That's to – That's a great definition of addiction. Actually. Like That's great. give me more every day for the next 15 I'm years. I'm this thing that's making me sick. Yeah. And I, as I got older – because you got sober young. Yeah. I got sober at 43. Yeah, that's and a lot of time basically, to ride the range. And the hangovers just got worse and worse. And it got to the point where I was having a hard time stringing sentences together. Yeah. Well, so, I got sober because I moved to L.A. and I was driving a car. And I thought, well— The consequences um, caught up with Yeah, that. I thought I came—and I still drove around shit-faced for two years yeah. before I got, I got smart. I want to talk—when um, did pure vegetarianism take hold with you? When I was growing up, I had that weird paradox of loving animals and loving Burger King. You know, when I was in junior high school, high school, like, we had a bunch of rescue animals, and I loved them unconditionally, but I also loved pepperoni pizza. And I had this one rescue cat named Tucker who I'd found at the dump in Darien, Connecticut, and I loved Tucker even more unconditionally than I unconditionally loved the other animals. And when I was 19, I had this, like, Saul on the road to Damascus moment where suddenly I looked at Tucker and I was like, he has two eyes, a central nervous system, and a profoundly rich emotional life and a deep desire to avoid pain and suffering. And in that moment, I sort of extrapolated and realized every animal with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life and a a deep desire to avoid pain and suffering. So that's when I became a vegetarian and then 87 became a vegan. And my only vegan relapse was in 92, I had yogurt once. (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. So now I've got 31 years. What is your diet? Basically something you, 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 you cook at home or you, how yeah. do you eat? Well, actually, I own a vegan restaurant in Los Angeles called Little Pine. And what Where ma- is it? It's in Silver Lake. And what makes it unique is that 100% of the profits go to animal rights organizations. Because uh-huh. at this point in my life, I don't – I mean, I still am – selfish and probably pretty narcissistic, but all of my work, 100% of the money I make professionally goes to the charities I work with because I'd rather live, you were sort of addressing this, like live a simple life, like live very much within my means and make art and music for the love of you art and music. had a big home at one point. I had a, a couple of them. Right. And it, like I had a, this crazy 60-acre compound up in um, Putnam County. Uh-huh. And when I moved to LA, I moved to a, a castle Right. But farms, I, was, I yeah. wasn't happy in these places. Right. And I was just asking myself, like, why am I having this sort of like Gatsby-esque excess, this Citizen Kane style like overcompensation if the end result is like I've tied up my resources in real estate and I'm miserable and no one's benefiting. So like now I live in a much simpler house. I've got a little simple apartment in Park Slope and I can just work for the causes that I care about. Freedom. Yeah. And, and freedom. And that freedom to like make art, music – books, etc. And if there's money, just give the money 
to different that's very, causes. Uh, that's very. Uh, that's amazing to do that. But that, it, that's rare. That's rare. But it's I'm also one, to hear one of the that. benefits of my weird attachment issues is like I'm not married. I don't have kids, so like I have this odd autonomy. So I'm able to no do that. No one's relying on you. Yeah, and so there's. It is like that. There's a luxury to that, like a, a, almost like a monastic independence. Yeah. This is I, – I can't think of any better way to ask this. I'm sure there's a better way to ask this, but I want to ask, like, who cares for you? Where is love in your life if you're so autonomous and, and, and you don't have the fans and the public and the mm-hmm. press, which is a form of love? It's like an energy that, 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 that simulates love. It isn't really love. But in your life, where is the love and the, and the care in your life? Who's caring for you? Okay. Well, a few friends. So um, close friends are um, there for you. I have a few family members, but – there's the answer that I'm uncomfortable giving because it's one of the hardest things to say in our world is – so when we do the 12 steps, when I got to the third step and the third step says made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as, as we, we understood God. And I really wrestled with this because I was like – I was like the care of God as I understood God. Like I don't understand God. And that was my epiphany. I was like, oh, the God of my understanding is a God that I do not understand. And, and I was like, but I see evidence, again, not to anthropomorphize, but I see evidence of divinity in kindness, in forgiveness, in the gentleness of puppies. In, in the redacted parts of the Mueller reports. <laughs> in our immune systems. I, like I see in my eyes, this is all evidence of the divine. And so in nature and all these things. And so – uh, my honest answer that's an uncomfortable secular 21st century answer is divine love is what I search is for. Is your oxygen. That's – but also – It's if, a component of it. You have other people in your and life. And if I die about. and someone says, oh, guess what? There's no God. We live in this empty existential cipher void. Like you're just a bunch of like weird molecules that have come together arbitrarily. That's okay too. But I, I do somehow in my dim – I don't know, naive way, see evidence of the divine. And so it's always trying to move towards that. Again, not religious, not denominational, no gender. It's just simply this idea of the divinity of like forgiveness and puppies and immune systems and the unredacted Mueller report and et cetera. So that's a huge that's that's where I get a lot of comfort from. What's music in your life now? You continue to write? Yeah. I mean, I, I work on music mainly for the love of music. Right. I refuse to tour. I hate touring unless it's going to do orchestral things. Right. I had this wonderful realization, I guess it was about 11 years ago, the first time I met David Lynch, and we've since become pretty good friends. L.A. has that going for it. Mm-hmm. I live around the corner from David Lynch. Mm-hmm. But when I first met him, he was being interviewed at BAFTA in London And he said something so reductive and simple, and it really struck me, is he said, very simply, he said, creativity is beautiful. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, he's right. Like, why am I compromising my creativity in the interest of, like, commercial gain and for for worldliness? I was like, as we know, like, music is that ineffable beauty. Like, it, it can communicate love and transcendence and beauty that should be my goal. Not that I'll ever reach it. Not that I'll ever make beautiful, ineffable, wonderful music. But like if every day I wake up with that as the goal and not in the interest of worldliness. And, what, and other people – I mean you've written a book. 
you uh, at points in your life have conquered the music business. Have you ever wanted to try other media? Have you ever wanted to make films? Yeah, I'm actually, I have a weird production company. I feel like I use the word weird too much. Um, but I have a production company in L.A. We're working on some documentaries. We've got some scripted features, an animated feature that we're trying to develop. But Do you have your hand in that too. Do you like making films? I love it as long as I have, to your point, the recourse of autonomy Meaning like some of the projects we're working on, like, sure, it would be great if we have financing, if we get people attached to it, but we also have projects that we can do 100% ourselves. And because as we know, like how much time have our friends spent waiting, you know, waiting yeah. for the financing, yeah. waiting for this to be greenlit. The approval. And with the production company, again, my goal is to never make, personally never make money from it. So if money is generated, it goes to my foundation or it goes to causes I work with. <laughs> And that, if you say up front, uh, I'm, I'm going to be involved in projects in the film business, and I never want to make money with them, you're not going to have a lot of meetings in L.A. You're <laughs> want, not going to get a lot of meetings. I want I just other want to people to make money from right, it. Like, okay. like the guy who runs my production company and my head of development and some of our partners, I want them to be fabulously wealthy. I would rather be like live in a shitty apartment in Hollywood or, I don't know, in Bed-Stuy and work for causes that I care about. I just don't, I don't want to personally benefit from it. I would like to do a documentary film, and I'd like to put you together on a project. I'd like to couple you on a film project with someone equally maniacally creative and independent as you. I'd like to do a film where, like, we get you in a, in a studio, and you're going to do, like, a little project with Coppola. Two people who don't want to collaborate with other people, really, yeah. and you force them to – they agree to collaborate for this one time and see what the result would be. I'd watch that. Yeah. I, 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 I want to produce that. Okay. <laughs> by the way, you don't have to make any yeah. money. My kids are expensive. I'm keeping all the money. Are okay, you cool great. with that? I'm 100% fine I think with we're it. done then. We have a deal. Thank okay. you. Moby, composer, musician, recovering addict, and proud ex-celebrity. Didn't you think he's cool with that? I do. You do? Okay. Moby's new book is called Then It Fell Apart. It's very funny and very sad. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. 
Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.